Sup, nerds? This is In My Expert Opinion, a podcast about the nonfiction side of speculative fiction. Your hosts are Dr. Marcus Cole. I get paid to do science. Sarah Ward. I'm a scientist in progress. And me, Abby Cole. I'm not a scientist at all. Join us as we geek out about the made-up stuff we love and the real stuff that shaped it. Today we're going to talk about 100 Years of Solitude, daguerreotypes, and the science and chemistry of photography. Very cool. Yeah, this is going to be a pretty fun episode. Significantly less uh, depressing than our uh, previous episodes on 100 Years of Solitude. I'm very optimistic about this being uh, a bunch of like garbage early science that I can make fun of. And then also, to be <laughs> frank, yeah, that's fair. A bunch of science that I don't understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what? Abby, to be completely honest, you're going to be a little disappointed because the science that was discovered and is referenced in 100 Years of Solitude really is used for most of uh, modern history up until the digital camera. Not going to oh, lie. Well, yeah. Oh, th- there wasn't like some like crazy nonsense for a while there where they're like, actually. <laughs> um, there, I wouldn't say nonsense. It was a lot of just kind of piggybacking off of other people's experiments and trying new things. But like... Even though people kind of tried to do different things, we've photography, especially like film photography, has used the same chemistry since like the 1800s. Sure. It hasn't been like, first we started with humors, then we went to like (laughs) horse womb homunculus, and now we're in medicine. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So let's uh, let's start off by talking about how it shows up in 100 Years of Solitude. Absolutely. Uh, this takes place like right after the insomnia plague and uh, right before the arrival of the outside world to Macondo. Uh, Melchiades uh, shows up with the cure to the insomnia plague. Yeah, this is the alchemist guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, he shows up with a cure, and he also shows up with a daguerreotype machine. Is it a machine? Uh, a, a no. daguerreotype uh, yeah, thing. It, so, what I mean, a daguerreotype is basically like a, a picture, to, to put it simply. Oh. Like, yeah, it, like it, okay. it'd be like framed. I think he brings like a daguerreotype lab or something, like to, to oh. take the pictures. Oh, okay. okay. Yes, yes, yes. So, he was probably bringing a camera obscura and sure. had daguerreotype uh, plates. To make the images. Yes. Okay. So uh, Jose Arcadio gets really into this and decides he wants to uh, use the daguerreotype to prove the existence of God. Yeah. Although he he gets kind of freaked out about it at first. Like when they like first show up with it. His like wife hates it because she's like, she basically says she doesn't want to be like a laughing stock to her grandchildren. Like she doesn't <laughs> want like her like, image. ugly or? No, I don't know. She like doesn't want her like image like kept ah. like that. But Jose Arcadio is like. Like, at first, he's, like, frightened because uh, he was thinking that people were slowly wearing away while his image would endure on a metallic plaque, which is, like, very bleak. Yeah. Um, But I guess he changes his mind and is like, actually, I could probably prove that God exists, so. <laughs> By taking a picture of him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. So uh, how do daguerreotypes work, Marcus? Yeah. Uh, so daguerreotypes are sometimes, I guess, considered, like, the first form of, like, photography. Mm-hmm. There, but the uh, kind of idea of having like a photosensitive material like predates uh, daguerreotype. And so, if you're going to talk about daguerreotype, you kind of need to um, go back 
maybe like a decade or two before its invention. And um, we can briefly talk about um, Joseph Nesiphore Nietzsche, um, a French. Whoa. Yeah, right. What is this? <laughs> um, so he discovered um, his uh, heliotype, I think uh, is what they were called, in like the 1814, 1815. Oh, okay. So that's actually, I don't, that's weirdly not as early or as late as I thought it would be. Yep. I actually know exactly what you mean. <laughs> 1814 is like kind of a weird like middle spot of like, oh, okay. It's not early and it's not late. <laughs> it's, sure, it's 1814. <laughs> no, I, I fully agree with you, Sarah. It's a very Thank strange sort of paradoxical kind of feeling, but I, I fully agree. <laughs> no, I mean like the, so I feel like I guess like at this time period, you very much have like blending of art in science in the same way that like when we were talking about like alchemists, there was just like this blend of like art, science, mythical aspects and medicine all just being done by like the same group of people. Partly because of like how education systems were working, like people were like generally educated in like a lot of things, right? Versus like I specialize in this. Like you have like a lot of major alchemists like uh like Boyle or Newton who are philosophers and scientists and mathematicians and alchemists and this and you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they just I guess kind of did everything. I feel like the earlier in time you go back, the truer that is. Like uh we keep coming back to Aristotle, for example, over oh, and the over. The man who's done everything. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like it's it, you get to be the expert on everything, I guess, the earlier in time you exist well, i guess there's less to know overall <laughs> yeah no and, and like you're you're and also the things that you're discovering they quickly become integral to like aspects of society or just like mm. mainstream because it's like like right now like when we do like science it's very like i guess it's not even necessarily like fringe it's so niche yeah it's very niche and it's not necessarily meant to like provide like immediate like societal like impact and and I guess like also like the way like we kind of like structure like research like you don't have a, like a bunch of like people that are both like artists and mystics that are also like getting like money to create new science. That sounds like the dream. <laughs> Just I uh, do whatever the heck I want and everyone will pay me to do it. I guess probably a lot of these scientists and philosophers and artists etc people uh had uh, money and didn't have to worry about i was gonna say they probably were just like wealthy because then they were the ones who yeah. could afford to send their their like kids to school and like yeah. university yeah. and all this shit right yeah no i mean like obviously like at this time like the um aristocracy is like who's doing the science like you this right, is not yeah. your average people but they're also trying to like create things for like uh a lot of it's for I guess, like, leisure or, like, entertainment. Like, we're talking about, like, photography, like, specifically. And, like, to get back to the um, heliotypes um, or heliography. So all of the stuff, like, we're talking about, whether it's the daguerreotype or the heliography or some of the other chemistries or science we're talking about, is using light to create a pattern. So um, the whole idea of, like, photolithography, like, what we use to make semi, like, uh, microchips and circuits. What? We'll we'll get back to that at the <laughs> closer to the end. <laughs> we'll, okay. we'll we'll come back. Okay. <laughs> you guys are just talking about it like it's like oh yeah of course you know how we use photography to make microchips. What? <laughs> <laughs> 
this that really honestly guys i knew i was gonna be a little bit out of my depth here i didn't <laughs> think it would happen sub 10 minutes into no. recording uh, whoops <laughs> no abby you've got this like you you are in mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. well you may not understand how like a computer chip is made you are a user of computer chip right now and you're participating in photolithography as like a user you're like the end user <laughs> but using light to create patterns is like i guess like the first versions were in like the 1800s and 1700s and they were all like using uh asphalt asphalt yeah asphalt as like what uh we call in lithography the photoresist so the thing that reacts with light and like undergoes a chemical reaction i'm sorry is asphalt not pavement is this a separate thing so what you would do um back in the day you would use um asphalt or it was normally um, referred to as a bitumen bitumen it's like cinnamon's older brother (laughs) bitumen Please do not um, ingest bitumen, listeners. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, bitumen is just like kind of like the higher molecular weight molecules from um, petrol or like gasoline, effectively. Sure. Okay. And so it's like a viscous, like black goo. So, like, like thick, yeah. thick petroleum. Why couldn't I say that word? I, I was going to let <laughs> you finish Petroleum. <laughs> you wanted to pronounce every individual <laughs> But yeah, so the way this works is because uh, asphalt actually has a high content of um, naphthene aromatics. So these are particular compounds that can react with light, but can also form new bonds fairly easily when they're exposed to light. Which, and I say fairly easily, like to make images like this, uh, it took hours of exposure versus like seconds when we're talking about lithography um, of today. Um, But all you would take is like basically a... um, oiled paper sheet that was engraved so you had some kind of image that you wanted to project onto um any kind of substrate that was coated in asphalt you'd expose remove the mask yeah so it's a thin it's a thin layer of asphalt i'm assuming right it's a thin layer of asphalt that's uh, coated on like um normally like like stone or some other kind of like sheet and um when you expose it it hardens in the areas that are actually exposed to the light because that's where the chemistries happen and in the areas that aren't exposed it's still like the viscous goo and all you're basically doing is then doing an etching step or a washing step where you wash away the asphalt where it wasn't exposed because it's not hard and the places where it did harden or cure it is no longer soluble so those um that latent image is left behind so basically you have a rock yep. you have a thin yep. layer of asphalt on the rock mm-hmm. then you yep. put down your sheet or whatever yeah your engraved sheet which is called a photo mask then you put down light so that parts of the asphalt are exposed to the light because the sheet is only blocking bits and pieces of it mm-hmm. okay and then you wash it so the stuff that was exposed stays and what wasn't exposed leaves and then you have asphalt in a shape. Yep. Okay, so what you are left with is an image that is a rock with asphalt on it in places. Exactly. Okay. And this whole like principle of like creating a pattern through a mask onto another layer is how lithography like was originally started and literally how we do lithography to this day. Like chemistry is different, masks are different, but this idea of using a shape and a latent image and light is very, very, very old. Cool. Now, Marcus, clarify for me. Sure. Because I always fucking forget this. <laughs> is this about negative? <laughs> is this a positive? Is, is this a positive or a negative photoresist? Because I swear to God, yeah. every fucking time okay. I forget. Sarah, you, you, you have no idea how many times I look this up, and even this morning, to make sure I got this right. <laughs> it's like 
like it's so sad that like I've been doing I don't do photolithography, but like I've been in the realm of polymer chemistry yeah. for years and every time I'm always like, shit, which one is that? Here's a stupid question. Is asphalt a polymer? Yes. Or it's a bunch okay. of other like small molecules and polymers in it. Oh. Okay. I mean it gets to the point of the question of is at what point do you consider it a polymer? How many mers do you need to be considered a polymer? Yeah. How many mers? Yeah, mer is the unit. Poly <laughs> means mini, mer means unit. They're made up of monomers, monomer meaning one, mer meaning unit. So how many monomers do you need to make a polymer? At what point is it at a polymer? And Abby, you just got polymer 101 in like 30 seconds. You just got most of polymer science. Yeah, basically. <laughs> That's most of it, really? <laughs> just kidding. I, I, I've been oversimplified. <laughs> Anyway, yes, asphalt yeah. does have uh, <laughs> these shorter chains, and it also has longer chains yeah. of uh, whatever units they are. Exactly. Cool. All right. And it also has some small uh, molecules in there too, because these are like uh, like nap like a uh, mothballs like um, naphthalene. So there's like oh, things- I knew it sounded familiar. Yeah. So there are things like naphthalene or naphtha in there that are kind of like facilitating the chemical reactions that are going on. Cool. All right. Now, Marcus, it's a really fast interruption. I can't remember where we settled on the asphalt thing being a positive, a positive oh. or a negative photoresist. Did I don't even think we answered it. I think we. I don't even <laughs> think we answered it. Which one is it? Um. So the asphalt is a negative photoresist because, like, what or what is left behind is what is like not washed like away. Whoa! Wait, hang on. Yeah, no. I mean, like the the positive resist is meaning like you make the image through like the photo exposure, which means you're normally going to be positive resist. I guess means like wherever you expose, like that is what's going to in- engrave the image. I guess would be like a better way to do it. So it's like where you hit it with light is then like what is what would be what goes away because like you're not having to like remove a bunch of material like when you have a positive resist. It's basically like an outline of what was like um the bulk material versus like a negative resist you're like only leaving behind a little bit of like the bulk material where it's like hardened and everything else is like washed away. Very cool. I hope that's a good explanation. Basically the positive photoresist is what was under the mask is what you want. The negative photoresist is what was not under the mask is what you want. Mm-hmm. This is so beautiful. But yeah, so this like uh took really long exposure times. Um and uh also like the quality of the image wasn't necessarily like that great. Oh, you mean the asphalt wasn't making the fucking crisp like aspect ratio that we were looking for? <laughs> exactly. And so some eight bit shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um but uh Nisifore, um Nipche, who like any good uh, scientist who's trying to like improve their technique is like, you know what, I'm gonna go and try to collaborate. And I need to probably find someone who also has, like, a passion for making images. He decides to reach out to... I actually, uh, my next reference I would like to make is at this time, this is Regency period. So what he did was actually he went and found, like, the Bridgertons or, like, some of the fucking <laughs> rich nobility in the middle of a romance uh, novel to oh get their help. Gosh, because surprisingly, wait, people wait. in romance novels do a lot of science I'm... when they're trying to make them, like, quirky protagonists. I'm going to write this book. Everybody back the fuck off. This is my IP now. <laughs> uh, so who did he go find? So yeah, uh, Nisefora Nipche trying to find a collaborator, um, and he happens upon uh, Jacques Mondet Daguerre. Ooh, oh, Daguerre. I get it. Which brings us to Daguerreotype. Um, Daguerre was a, an inventor, but r- really a, a showman um, of his time. So like in the like, and so this is in uh, Paris, uh, where he's uh, located. And at the time, he was putting on like these giant dioramas where he would project images of like maybe like various scenes in Paris onto a screen inside of like a tent, but he would blow it up. I, I know this is 
not what you meant, but when you said that, I imi- immediately pictured him with like a fucking stick of dynamite, just like <laughs> blows it up. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, there were there were no uh, ex- well, I there there may have been some explosions there. I, I don't know, but know. they were not related to um <laughs> him using um what's called like a camera obscure, which is just a lens with uh, mirrors um that can then focus an image and um, expand it onto a new uh, display. Which is basically the whole like setup for like our the modern camera, which you would then just put something that could record the image instead of projecting it onto a bigger screen. But yeah, so um, from eighteen twenty two to about um eighteen thirty nine, he was the co proprietor of uh, this diorama in Paris, and during this time is when he's approached by um Nibshay. and um basically they're just like, hey, like we're really both into like optics and images, and I'm trying to figure out better ways to uh create images uh, on um, Nipche's side, which, and I read, I tried to read more onto the history of this, but it seems like there was like immediately uh, <laughs> disagreements between these two. <laughs> they already mm-hmm. fucking hated yeah. each other. <laughs> um, because, well, and it basically <laughs> came down science. to, yeah, exactly, right? Nipche was really wanted to focus on like having a um, very like pristine image and was not really interested in the amount of time it took to develop um, any kind of image. And, um... I'm assuming Daguerre, like, He's thinking like, about- this asphalt sucks. This is too goopy, too slow. I hate it. Well, it wasn't yeah. even the slow. It was just, like, the goop and that, the, like, resolution more than anything. He wanted to make very pristine images that, like, actually looked like things. And Daguerre um, was in- more or less was more interested in, like, let's figure out how to make these as fast as possible. Like, I don't want to have to sit here and expose an image for hours and- I've got explosions to rig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, I've got a diorama to get back to. Whatever. Um... <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I and I this is the 1800s, so like I really would love to like know a little bit more about their relationship and um their collaboration. But um sadly, uh, Nietzsche actually uh, passed away before um they were able to complete their work. But they were able to um collaborate for about four years before then. And um during that time, they pretty much developed what uh we now understand today as daguerreotype, which based off of the same kind of like techniques in the um heliotype or the heliograph um, that Nietzsche pioneered. So what you have is these, um, normally like a copper plate. Copper was like readily available back in the back, back then. You could just get sheets. And you would then have a layer of uh, silver. Oh, yeah, that checks out. Why does that check out? Simple like metal plating. Yeah, so you wouldn't like, you, you want to use like a whole slab of silver because that's really expensive. And like, I mean, even to like this day, like we do like layer by layer assembly and like we don't normally just like use like slabs of things if we can just like use like a thin film of it and so you would um now have this plated silver on uh this copper substrate and you'd want to buff it down um to basically remove any um oxide layer so you're what you would basically what they would do is like buff it until you would have like a pristine reflection with like no kind of like defects or smudges that would make you think that like something had absorbed onto the surface from like the air like moisture or that like your silver had started to oxidize so does this get polished down before creating the image or is this after yeah this is all the prep okay so once you get this like perfect um pristine um silver coating at the time you would then expose it to uh different or i mean at the time it was normally like iodine crystals or uh bromine to form a silver um, halogen or silver halide surface on top. What is halogen? It's that whole uh, column on the periodic table, chlorine, bromine, okay. that Yeah, yeah, one. yeah. But these happen to be uh, compounds that are readily um, trying to accept electrons to uh, fill their outer shell. 
They're just one short, basically, so they want to, like, have the one extra electron to fill the shell. Mm-hmm. I love when, like, scientific phenomena are given these, like, human characteristics of desire. It's like, <laughs> oh, I just want one more. <laughs> no, we, like, it's like an electron affinity. I like it. It's either talking about it like that or talking about uh, wave functions. And I prefer the feelings version. Me too, as an organic <laughs> chemist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, into it, and I'm sure there's like a bunch of like rich literature probably on like how this was discovered, but I couldn't find like a great source. But I really wanted, like, I'm assuming that at some point while they were doing this research, um, and then just kind of taking these different materials, exposing them to like an image or light and seeing if like anything changed, they happened to probably knock over some bromine or iodine onto this surface and then used that plate to make an image and it just happened to work because there there isn't really like a reason to expose this to bromine or it, it just didn't really like make sense for all the other things they were like doing so like it could just be they happened to have it like in their lab and they were like well i mean what happens now right like i'm bored this isn't working i'm annoyed i have two other theories about how this could happen okay a explosion splashes <laughs> bromine everywhere sure b in one of their disagree disagreements one of them chucks bromine at the other and then oh. it gets on it interesting <laughs> totally possible a lot more um, drama yeah right man yeah. That would, that'd be great for uh for cinema or for my upcoming romance novel <laughs> guys this is my ip back the fuck up <laughs> yes right 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 right, right. <laughs> But yeah, back to the daguerreotype uh, process. And I and I say this as like a I feel like a lot of times in like chemistry, it's always like an accident like we're like like I know a lot of like organic chemistry in like the like 1900s was discovered as people accidentally ashing cigarettes in their reactions. It's like, "Oh, we just needed some carbon." And that was just yeah, like dude, the catalyst. That's like fucking people working <laughs> way up to like the 70s and 80s yeah. and 90s like smoking in lab, like running ether uh separations <laughs> and they're like smoking out the side of their mouth as a cigarette and stuff. You guys are making fun of this risky behavior as if both of you have not been responsible or witnessed fires in immediate proximity to you. Uh, Listen, fires happen. High humidity (laughs) happens over the summer. It's fine. We know how to like put them out. Yeah, but we were not like putting ourselves in unnecessary risk by like smoking cigarettes inside of the lab. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't smoke a cigarette in lab and then go wash my hands with benzene afterwards. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You're laughing. That's not a joke. People did that. Oh, what? Yeah, that's how people used to wash their hands in organic chemistry. People just thought that it was a good solvent for like removing oils and things like that and didn't realize that it was like a A severe carcinogenic (laughs) compound. Yeah. But yeah, also um, for like the sake of like the time of like science, it was not uncommon, I guess, to fume different things with like halogens because like we knew that like you could like heat up like iodine and it was like easily to like to sublime. Right. Well, this is kind of a continuation of what we were talking about in the alchemy episode of a lot of way earlier than this, but early alchemists spending a lot of time looking at uh, sublimation and vapors and their effects on solid materials. Um, Not necessarily with like halogenated substances, but, you know, this idea of, okay, well, if I fume mercury, what happens kind of thing? If I fume Mm -hmm. this, what happens? What if I put it under this? What if I put it on top of this? So this is just like, I think a pretty standard way of doing chemistry for a very, very long time. Yeah. And honestly, like, and I will say specifically, because I've done a lot of research about like photolithography and photography this week. 
our science would have been so limited if we hadn't had alchemists in like the 1400s or and like oh doing their like absolutely crazy shit like yeah. having like that knowledge <laughs> of being able to create the glassware like the chambers and how to control things like gases like w- we would yeah, not man. be where we are at like if we didn't have people thinking that like i could like find the elixir of like life or like create like turn like lead into like gold you got to start somewhere so shout out to the alchemist always for giving us shout the glassware out. <laughs> it's very beautiful. We will always come back to Alchemist we on the show. We will always come back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're back. So we're back. So we've got our copper. We've got our silver. And uh, now we've got our silver. Um, normally, um, iodide or bromide. Um, at the time. So at this point, where you've got this kind of silver halogen, um, chemistry is where photography chemistry essentially like stops for like the next like. Hundred plus years because of solitude. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) But yeah, no. So now I can kind like I'll kind of take us briefly through like the whole like mechanism and like how an image is actually made. Um, because everything before that was just like the prep to make a a piece of film. What? Yeah, I totally misunderstood (laughs) what was happening. Well, to be fair, with the asphalt that was making oh image, then I didn't. Okay, I'm good. the, The whole thing with the silver and the uh you know, halogenation and all that. That was all like just making okay. a thing that could be imaged on. That, great. Then I wasn't totally confused. No, you were not, You did not like miss a bunch of stuff. But yeah, so once you actually have your silver um, halogen, this is where all of the photochemistry starts to happen. So you're going to now like load your daguerreotype plate into, um, if you're doing this in like the 1800s, you'd be doing it into like a camera obscura. Um, but if you're doing this in like the... 1990s with a piece of Kodak film. Um, mm-hmm. it, the whole mechanism is essentially the same. That's super cool. Uh, so what actually is happening is when you, so I guess in the film it's a little bit different. So you've got um an emulsion of silver halide, so it's like particles of the silver halide salt in a matrix of a gel. But back in the day, you we didn't know how to make or process things like that into like little particles. So like we just had sheets of silver halide on top of copper. So what happens in when you expose the plate to light, you have a um, a photoelectric event, meaning that a photon hits your compound and an electron is then ejected because you kind of excited those molecules or that atom a lot and it just had to shoot out an electron to compensate for that increased energy. Cool. Electrons tend to go to places of like defects when they do just get shot out of places. Um, It's just a low energy state where it can find itself. And in this kind of a silver halogen um, sheet, if we're talking daguerreotype, you can have this electron reside on one of the silver halide atoms and it actually forms um, metallic silver. And so what happens is like as long as you have a steady stream of light coming in, you have electrons being shot out and then recaptured in these um, defect sites that then kind of um, accumulate metallic silver versus the silver um, halide salt. Basically, as you're exposing all these photons, you're not just exposing indiscriminately, you're exposing based on like what's coming in through the lens. So everywhere you're getting hit, you have this buildup of metallic silver, which actually forms your latent image. Sweet. Um, so this is what is happening in on the daguerreotype substrate, but also like in your film, like you have like these now crystal, like smaller crystals of silver halide, um, but it's still the same like photoelectric event, silver kind of migrating to these defects and like taking on these electrons. And then you have silver metal, which um, can create the uh, contrast between the silver halogen and the image. Yeah. So about the contrast, um, 
you would be having, so the more light that is coming in through the lens, the more photons, like obviously, right? Like, so more photons coming in through the lens, the more excitation, the more defect accumulation. So is the metallic silver meant to be the the light parts of the film then? And then where there's relatively less excitation, there would be the uh the non-metallic silver and that would be like the dark part of the film so daguerreotypes actually create both a negative and positive image because you do get a darkening in the area like where um you have the most light so that would then make it a negative oh i see okay yeah so there's more excitation there and so it gets darker darker yeah but because it's a reflective backed material um you're actually getting a lot of scattering at those areas so depending on how you look at a daguerreotype it could either look at the negative or the positive of the image Weird. Oh, like the angle of it? Mm-hmm. Because it's like depending on like the scattered angle of the light and what you actually see based on like the silver in that area. So Oh, but then I, I guess on film that's why you have the negatives of the film. Yeah. And exactly. then you use like in the dark room you do God knows I don't fucking know anything about photography, but <laughs> the like the transfer problem. from the negatives to the actual image. Yeah. I actually I took photography in high school. You have to like learn how to load these canisters in the dark without looking because you have to do it in absolute darkness. Yeah. And then you dip it into a. This was going to be my next question: is what are all the things that you dip it into? Yeah. And <laughs> on it. And honestly, that chemistry. Ha- okay. There's been two pretty big changes from if you go from daguerreotype to uh, film. And okay. And yeah, I just want to make sure I didn't skip anything as I'm explaining this. Um. But yeah. So now we've got our latent negative image. On the daguerreotype, though. Um, but this is not, like, your most stable um, form of, like, the image because, especially for, like, daguerreotype, like, at the time, these weren't the most um, efficient systems for, like, absorbing light and, like, having, like, a photoelectric event. Um, Dr. Wolfgang Kutek and one of his uh, students, Valentina Tobish, um, published a paper in Chem Plus Chem back in 2019 where they actually went through the history of daguerreotype and did all of like the electrochemistry and like recreated some of these experiments and like did uh edx imaging to look at like elemental analysis of particular points and images based on different kinds of daguerreotype processes um it's really interesting kind of like to prove out a lot of like the theories that people were having about like ways of processing images or using different kinds of halogens to create better images um that weren't necessarily based on like the most like robust science of the time but like worked but yeah so you got this now latent image that needs to be um further developed because like in when you first make like the now uh elemental silver it's not necessarily uh the most cohesive system like all of like these um clusters of like atoms that have formed like little clusters maybe little like spread out so like you're gonna have a very grainy image like really poor resolution um and so what was done they uh were figuring out trying to figure out ways to um fix the image Do you mean like correct or like hold in place? A little bit of both. Oh, neat. What a good use of the word fix. Yeah. I love it. Sorry, I guess develop would be the, sorry, I want to make sure I'm getting these terms back. This was the development point, not the fixing point. The fixing is a different chemistry. So they wanted to develop the negative. Yeah, to make it a better image before um, fixing it. Because once you fix it, then everything's locked in place. And so what um, Daguerre happened to find was, I guess, one of his old uh, latent images had been sitting in a cupboard and he had looked at it and he could actually see a like a much more um, dis- distinct image forming um, in hmm. this kind of dark cupboard. And he was like, because there were just some chemicals in there. And he was like, what? 
cause the image to improve. Like it looks kind of a little bit more reddish and mm-hmm. like signif- like actually like kind of developed. And so he went through a series of experiments and found out that it was actually uh, mercury fumes that had developed. What? Really? Yeah. So what is happening here um, is the mercury can actually, it's ca- it helps form what is called the silver amalgam. So all, all the mercury fumes are doing are salt, like, solubilizing some of the um, elemental silver and bringing it together. Hmm. So you're heating the mercury, it's solubilizing it, and it's, and it's basically making a more cohesive image in the silver-rich areas. So for him to have discovered this, he would have had to have left all of his chemicals like just like uncapped sitting around or... Oh, I mean, chemists even today yeah. are not super <laughs> great about this. <laughs> <laughs> that was so clearly pointed. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened to him is something that like pretty much happens in, or I guess now not so much because these are like, we use alcohol thermometers now, but he had a broken a thermometer. That was all that this oh, was. Yeah, and it, okay. yeah. Another incident from the uh, knock him down, drag him out, throwing things across the lab <laughs> fight that he had. Oh, yes, of course. They're passionate mm-hmm. scientific discussions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it was passionate. All right. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Not to derail you too much, Marcus. Yeah, I, I don't know if uh, that would have been a good lab uh, safety. Probably not. <laughs> No, it's not really great lab safety to be having, like, passionate arguments with your fucking, like, lover or whatever, throwing mercury thermometers around. That's how we make discoveries, guys. Fucking in lab. (laughs) I know what's up. Who needs a heating mantle? I just use the fire of my passion for my lab. (laughs) All of my reactions are heated by love. (laughs) I love it so much. Oh, my God. So, uh, back to this development stage. Yep, if we must. For a while, like, I mean, obviously at this time we knew mercury was not good. (laughs) Like, it was not going to get, like, hot, large exposures to mercury. And so what a couple of, like, scientists were doing around the time of, like, Daguerre showing some of his daguerreotypes and presenting his imaging techniques, uh, people were trying to figure out ways to kind of, uh, get around this whole mercury development stage. And um, one of those people who was pretty successful at doing this was Edmund um, Bicarel, who, um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on him, but the one thing, what he figured out was that you could actually use different wavelengths of light to develop the image. Because the silver um, halide itself is really only sensitive to like blue and UV light. And so he was really interested in um, magnetism, electricity, and obviously um, like photoelectric events and photochemistry. And he actually discovered um, the photovoltaic effect. So actually generating a voltage or current in the presence of light. All of his experiments were literally just putting two gold plates in electrolyte solutions, connecting them with a wire and hitting them differentially with light and watching a current being generated. And so this is like how all of like our solar cells work today. And at the time, if he uses a red wavelength or yellow um, light, he can basically generate enough of like a voltage to drive the elemental silver to various points so you can get a more developed picture so now you don't need the mercury fuming you can just hit it with a different wavelength of light that's not going to actually cause another photoelectric event to create new images but will just develop the areas that have already been um sensitized is this why like these like developing rooms only have red lights in them exactly oh very cool this allows you then to uh save all of your mercury for recreational use <laughs> exactly. is that the idea yeah exactly i mean you don't want to waste it on just like a picture right so <laughs> that's super cool i had no idea that that's why the rooms are red it's like for this specific reaction. And also that like the photovoltaic discovery was like connected to like photography. Yeah. 
But yeah, so the last uh, step in like the daguerreotype process is uh, the fixing step, which is where you actually create your final uh, negative and or positive image, depending on how you look at it. And this uses a chemical that any chemist who's ever worked with a halogen, specifically bromine. I, I don't know, Sarah, have you ever had to quench bromine? What do you mean quench? No, hell no, dude. I work with water-soluble, body-safe stuff all the time. I do not want to mess around with anything else. Um, No, but I've watched you quench it before. Yeah. I have watched that, actually. <laughs> Does it go up in flames or something cool? No. Like, when I was I was picturing, um like, s- the quenching part of, like, blacksmithing. Oh, no. Actually, quenching in uh, chemistry labs is usually very, very boring, because if it's not boring, then there's a problem. Yeah, it, it's supposed to be boring. Um, quenching tends to be uh, exothermic, meaning it releases a shit ton of heat, um, and you normally want to do this uh, cool. What are you quenching? What is happening here? Dude, so, what is, what is, what, what is what happening is... in this particular sense? <laughs> and so, uh, funny, this was the first, like, real, like, violent quenching I did in grad school, and it went nice. probably better than Daguerre's did. Um, So, <laughs> they had been using um halogens, and what you normally want to do to quench a halogen system, where you have, like, potentially molecular iodine bromine, is to reduce it down to the anionic form so that it can just be washed out with water. Um, And this is normally a fairly exothermic process. So, um, what Daguerre and what I used when I would quench my bromine was sodium thiosulfate. Um, And this is exactly what he was using to quench um, his images or fix these images. And so what this basically did was anywhere there was still um, silver halogen, it would convert it to just a silver salt, um, the silver thiosulfate salt, and then a bromide or a halide or an iodide anion that could then just be washed away with water. So everything left behind would just be the either like the the silver or um, the darkened silver areas where your image is now um, present. And so this cool. is like in this at this point means like no matter like if you expose this to light, you'll never create like a new image because there's no longer any kind of photosensitive material there. Right. So it's like totally fixed. Yeah, exactly. So moving forward, it was generally used like a mild solution of sodium thiosulfate was used to quench this because you normally don't need that much to quench a large amount of like halogen. When I would do this in the lab, I'd use like a maybe 0.5 molar solution. There would be a lot of fumes if I didn't do this below like zero C. So like it was a very effective quenching agent. Daguerre did this with hot like solution of salt. And I think hot it was pretty solution? Well, hot solution. And I think oh it was hot because God. it was probably saturated. It was actually <laughs> hot because of his love for what's the other guy's name? But, uh, Nipche. Yeah. yeah. No, it was that's why it was hot. Everything in there was hot. I cannot believe he had a hot solution of this for quenching. It's like so that's I'm, literally blowing my mind yeah, right now. I feel like that had to have destroyed the image or like scorched it in areas like there's no way that this was not like one of those moments where it's like okay wrote down the lab <laughs> don't do that do this below room temperature at least <laughs> <laughs> too hot not a too good hot. idea <laughs> exclamation point this is why actually he killed him oh, i'm sorry <laughs> i forgot to tell you this is my conspiracy theory oh sure I'm, this is my conspiracy theory is that daguerre killed Nietzsche because he wanted all the credit and also killed him in a crime of passion Mm -hmm. uh, because he felt that his passion was interfering with his work. Yeah, this is now a true crime podcast. And also he wanted all the credit. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. We've made We've an abrupt it. shift. Now we're just going back through history and solving like random, like accidental deaths <laughs> that we believe are actually murders. It is so, so easy wild. to solve crimes that don't exist when you don't care about facts. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. I'm- uh, yeah, I, I, I would ag- agree with that. <laughs> I'm the I'm the, the Sherlock Holmes of bullshit. Yeah, sure. <laughs> anyway, that was my conspiracy theory. I've been sitting on it for like half an hour. Sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh man. 
Yeah. So um, after the fixing process, like you, you can obviously like dry the image and um, most of the time you'd want to encapsulate it in like a, a glass like and sealed frame. Uh, to prevent any kind of air um, from getting exposed to the uh, silver because it would uh, oxidize and it would basically degrade the quality of the image. Um, but at this point, like you have a functioning image um, that would be a daguerreotype. And also at this point, I guess if you're using film is the point where you've got your um, process negative that can now be used to create a positive film on mm -hmm. basically another, a very similar kind of photo sensitive paper. Up until like, I mean, obviously like very few people use film now, but most of photography has relied on this chemistry, but also like has been enabled through polymer chemistry because like the best way to really make film is to kind of layer materials together in some kind of like encapsulating or matrix material that's not going to allow things to transfer until you want them to. And so mm -hmm. now like we can like layer in like your developing agent or your fixing agent or your actual photosensitizing layer all just kind of layered in and like adhered together into like a bulk film. And shout out to Polaroid. <laughs> to Polaroid specifically? To Polaroid specifically, because the concept of instant film and putting that much chemistry into a piece of like paper and like those things, like people still use Polaroids to this day. Yeah, but but that's just to be retro though. It's I like know. an it's like an aesthetic. It's a lasting aesthetic. Exactly. Because you don't have to go and get your film developed somewhere else. Like by yourself. It, the camera does it for you. Like, their Polaroid wouldn't be Polaroid if, like, they didn't, if it wasn't the instant development feature. Right. These are the most, like, like, I, like, when you hold a Polaroid, you're just like, oh, yeah, it just creates, like, an image. There are so many layers. 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 <laughs> <laughs> there, and they all, and it basically functions as, like, a subtractive, like, color developing mechanism. And so, like, you, like, in real time, like, you have to create, like, an, a latent image in color that is absent of the colors that you don't that weren't exposed that then allows like a dye to diffuse to a imaging layer that is then like fixed and then printed out in like seconds and it comes out with fairly good quality it's almost like god at work it's like god at work <laughs> exactly so marcus i have a question for you sure so could he like actually take a picture of god or like what <laughs> what's your like viewpoint here marcus yeah to to get back to uh, the whole 100 years of solitude um, I don't think he was able to take a picture of God, but as a scientist, I do feel like a lot of, uh, I mean, for me, uh, personally, I feel like doing science is kind of like how you can interact with like a higher power. So like I got a sense of like symbolism like there where like scientists are people that try to like understand the unknown and sometimes the unknown is considered God. So like by trying to create daguerreotypes, like I guess he is trying to prove, like, God's existence in a sense, but um, up for Damn. everybody's interpretation. Yeah. Uh, is that your expert opinion? And with that, mm -hmm. that is my expert opinion. Excellent. Woo! Thanks for listening to In My Expert Opinion please remember to rate and subscribe. We'd also be grateful if you'd leave a review with your expert opinion on why this podcast is rad. Five-star reviews will get a shout-out on the podcast. A pretty big deal, if you ask me. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at expertopspod, or email inmyexpertopinion at gmail.com. Later, nerds! <laughs>